Thank you, Jacob. <clears throat> uh, I just put the slide up. I'm kind of putting it up every week just so you see uh, where we're heading uh, in the teaching series at Foundation Church. And um, we're going through a series called The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church uh, because we're just starting out as a, a church plant together. And we want to make sure that when we're uh, building a church together, um, that we want to do that in a healthy way, in a way that uh, God lays out in the Bible. And so we, we're using this teaching series to help us just put the, the building blocks together. And so um, we are now on week three, where we're looking at the gospel. Uh, we have looked at expository preaching, uh, making the point uh, and the meaning of the Bible passage, the point and meaning of the sermon. That's what expository preaching is. Uh, last week, we looked at uh, the big story of the Bible, the, the sort of... Uh, you know, the big picture in biblical theology and the importance of that. And then next week, you can see conversion, evangelism, uh, and so forth. So that's kind of where we're at at the moment. I'm just going to switch that off for now. So today, we are talking about the gospel. And I just want to take a few moments before we really get into the meat of the, the message uh, by sort of linking it with where we are at last week. Biblical theology, we looked at uh, uh, the importance of sound doctrine, uh, you know, a body of teaching, the, the, the biblical storyline, you know, uh, God's saving uh, actions for humankind. And we saw how that sort of fits in together. We laid some basic groundwork for that. And so we need to have that in mind when we come to the subject of the gospel, because without the big picture of the Bible providing the backdrop, the gospel itself is confusing at best. Or worse still, it is pointless, because we can stand up and talk about the gospel as we understand it as Christians, and yet without that big picture behind it, it can become irrelevant. So uh, almost a sort of extended introduction, I'm going to talk and just refer to a bit about what we talked about last week, uh, biblical theology, and hopefully then you'll see how everything connects together. Um, so biblical theology, we sort of use these four uh, you know, markers, if you like, in the great scheme or the great story of, of, of God's saving actions. We, we saw that uh, that starts with creation at the beginning of the Bible. God created by the power of his word. He spoke and it came into being. And on the, the final day of creation, on the sixth day, he created humankind in his image as image bearers. And when you read Genesis 1, 2 and a bit of Genesis 3, you realize that as humankind, we are created uh, with the image of God to, to know him, to enjoy him, to be in a relationship with God. And you see in the, the beginning of Genesis 3, God, it says, is walking in the, the cool of the day with his people in the garden and just sets up this, this, uh, this scene of, of God with his people, enjoying intimacy with them. It was a perfect and beautiful relationship that they had. He was God, they were created, and yet they were together in this wonderful relationship. But the story does not end there, of course. In fact, it goes on. In, in, in Genesis 3, we get to the fall, what we've come to understand as the fall, where the serpent... Uh, representing Satan, the evil one, 
comes to uh, our first parents, Adam and Eve, and said to them, did God really say that you cannot eat from that tree? The, knowledge of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did God really say that? They, he questions God's word and the people are, uh, are uncertain about that and they listen to the lies of the evil one. He portrays God as miserly, as loveless, as God's rule as harsh. Surely God doesn't want you to be restricted from eating from that tree. Surely you know best. Maybe you can get blessing of your own accord by eating of that fruit, even though God has said you shouldn't do it. And so rather than listen to God's word, Adam and Eve sinned. They listened to temptation from the evil one. They took what they should not have. They ate from that tree which they were banned from eating. And they sinned. And they went against God's perfect will and his perfect rule. And at that point, they fell. It's a word, it's not in the Bible, but we use that word to say that they fell from this place of intimacy, this wonderful relationship, into a place of of curse, of of sin, away from God. And that happened with Adam and Eve, and we have been doing it ever since as humankind, generation after generation. You You hear some people saying, like father, like son. Or they say sometimes the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. What they mean is they're behaving like their father or mother or something like that. And so just like Adam and Eve, as people left to our own devices, we constantly disobey God. We do what he says not to do. We, we sin against him. And in his response... God is angry. He shows wrath and fury against sin. Wrath is God's anger against all forms of sin and injustice. And that's what the Bible teaches as the fall. And we don't really uh, need to go too far away from our own experience to see the effects of the fall in our own lives whether it's us personally and the things we do to other people that we shouldn't do or the things that other people do to us to hurt one another and to destroy each other on a one-to-one thing or maybe uh, families and conflicts and tribes and wars. We see the effects of the fall worked out in all of its terrible forms in our own lives and on our TV screens. See, the Bible has a very low view of sin. Perhaps in our own culture, we have come to understand sin as a bit of naughtiness, a bit of fun on the side that you should just not tell mum and dad, or your wife, or your husband, or whatever. We might even understand sin as doing bad things against other people. But according to the Bible, the primary sin that we commit is against God whether we realize it or not. It's cosmic treason. It's rebellion against a holy, loving, righteous God. Sin has a vertical effect, of course. It destroys and disrupts our relationship with God, but then it has horizontal effects as well in how we relate to one another. And we sort of thought about that a few moments ago. 
how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to his creation, the rest of created order. And as a result of the fall, all of those relationships are disrupted and corrupted. See, the biblical account of the way things are is devastatingly honest. It's very comprehensive. But it makes the best sense of what we all see with our own eyes and experience with our own senses. We all know that the Bible on this point is probably right. We know it intuitively that all is not right with the world. And the biblical understanding of that gives us a reason as to why it's not right with the world. But thank God, the story goes from creation, fall, to redemption. You see, despite it being devastatingly honest about sin and the effects that it has on us, it gives us the message of hope. And so that's where we get to just now, when we think of the gospel. Because as bad as the Bible says it is, there is good news that that is not how it will end. And so we come to look at this, this passage that Jacob read for us. Uh, I feel like I'm sort of treading on holy ground a little bit because what we're about to look at really is the center. It's one of the, I think, one of the, mm, uh, just the most lovely, complex, amazing statements of the gospel. And so I, I feel... A bit like Paul when he wrote to the church in Corinth and he said, I come to you with trembling and not with lofty words, but I come to present to you the cross of Christ and him crucified. And so I, I kind of feel a bit like that. I don't want to uh, say the wrong thing because it, it feels like holy ground. But we have God's word and we have his spirit with us who helps us to understand uh, these words. So um, let's work through this together. I've got four things I want to talk about. When it comes to the gospel, so this is kind of like the sermon proper right here, okay? Four things I want to talk about and three implications after that. So we could sort of argue that this is going to be a seven-point sermon, um, but fear not. It's not going to be a long one, I hope. So four main points of the gospel, first of all. I'll tell you them up front for those of you who are taking notes. Number one, I'm going to say the gospel is necessary. Number two, I'm going to say the gospel is gracious Number three, the gospel is costly. And fourthly and finally, the gospel is glorious. Okay, we'll work through bit by bit what I mean by that. So number one, the gospel is necessary. We've just been thinking, haven't we, about that biblical uh, framework, creation and fall and the effects of sin and how all of us are like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. We, we just sort of inherit it from our first parents and we live it out. We sin, we, we, we do things we shouldn't do. We're not doing things we should do and all that kind of stuff look down at verse 22 and 23 on the back of your service sheet um, at, at our text for today he says this is paul there is no distinction all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god remember as human beings we are created in the image of god to reflect his glory to to the world and to one another and, and, and back to him 
And Paul is right. He's saying here, all of us have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. That image that we bear of, of God's character in us and through us is, is marred. It is dirty. And so as a result, the Bible teaches, and we'll see this in a, in a few moments, the wrath, the, the judgment of God is upon humankind. If you think that's bad enough, Unfortunately, it gets worse. Because as Paul lays out in this passage here, we are not only under the wrath and the judgment of God because we're sinful, but there's nothing we can do about it. We cannot do anything about it. Whether you are religious and from a a Christian family, or whether you're not religious and you've never thought too much about religion, you've never heard, uh, it's certainly not something you're brought up in, doesn't matter, Paul says. There's no distinction if you're religious or irreligious. All have sinned. But it's the, it's the impulse of the human heart to try and fix ourselves, to, to, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, whether that's about engaging in religious activities, going to church, saying our prayers, giving money to charity, that kind of thing. Or, or, or whether we try and just live a good life and be nice to people and, and a good moral sort of person. Or do good works in the community or something like that. We always try and save ourselves by doing this kind of thing. You don't have it on the back of your sheet, but verse 20, the Apostle Paul says, No human beings are justified, that is made right in the eyes of God, by doing religious activities. Elsewhere, he says in the Bible, we are dead in our sins and transgressions. We are like spiritual corpses in the eyes of God, left to our own devices. See, according to the Bible, the extent of our sin that we've inherited and that we do is so vast and so deep and so extensive that we just can't take a a block of soap to our heart and, and, and clean it off. It's far worse than that. You can see why I say the gospel is necessary. We need it. And thank God it comes to us at our greatest needs. Our passage this evening starts in verse 21 and it says, But now. You see, for the last three chapters of this letter, Paul has been laying down the fact that whether you're religious or not, whether you try and live a good life or not, everyone's a sinner and there ain't nothing we can do about it. But now, at this stage in his argument, in his letter, there is a turning point. There is something that is different. There is a, a new way There is the gospel. There is a way, says Paul, that sinful people like you and me and everybody else in this room and everybody else outside, there is a way that we can be righteous in the eyes of God. That we can have the favour of God upon us. And that's where the gospel comes from. Number one, the gospel is necessary. But number two, the gospel is 
gracious. It is entirely of grace. And, and when I say grace, I mean God's unmerited favor flowing from his loving heart, looking upon sinful people with favor and for no other reason than his love. The gospel is gracious. I've just been saying a few moments ago that we cannot earn it. We cannot live a good life in order to get God to love us or to have favor upon us or to look at us with joy and pleasure. We cannot do it ourselves, but the gospel is gracious. Look at verse 22. This righteousness, this new thing. Enter the righteousness of God. How does it come? It comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Further down in verse 24, it makes it even more clear. It says we are justified, that is we are declared righteous by, listen, his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What's he saying? He is saying that it is possible for you and I and every other person who is sinful in the eyes of God but to be declared righteous by a gift that God gives to them because of what Jesus has done for them. And see, that is the important thing to hold out of all of this. The gospel is gracious. It is a gift. It is not something you have done. It is something that God has done for you in Jesus Christ. It is something that God has done to make you you right with him. Something that happened utterly outside of yourself. Something that someone else has done on your behalf. And the things that that person, that is Jesus, has done is applied to you. His benefits are applied to you. The gospel is gracious. In verse 25, it said it is received, it is received, it is taken by faith. Can you see why the gospel is starting to become good news? You are worse than you will ever know, even on your worst and most lowest day, when you look at the mirror, according to the Bible. But yet, because of the gospel... You can be seen in the eyes of God as a beautiful son or a daughter, not because of you and anything you are doing, but because of Christ and what he has done. And that applied to you by faith. You can start to see why the gospel is good news. The gospel is necessary. We need it. It is gracious. We can't earn it. Christ gives it to us. Thirdly, the gospel is costly. It is costly costs us nothing by the way but it costs God his most dearest his most prized thing in thing in all of the world it cost him his son the gospel is costly look down at verse 25 it says God put Jesus Christ forward he put him forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. God put forward Jesus to do something on our behalf. This word propitiation, it's sort of a, a, a word that we obviously don't talk about that much. It's something that would have been clear and obvious to those from a, a Jewish background. It's what happens when you put a sacrifice on the altar and you kill it. 
and it takes away the anger of God. That's what that means. See, Paul is saying here that Jesus was put forward by God the Father to take away the anger of God the Father that you and I deserve. The gospel is costly. It cost him his own son. See, God cannot just change his mind about you. He can't just wink at sin or just say, you know what? I'm just going to turn a blind eye. You, you fire on. No, no, no. God is always true to himself. He is, he is just. He is, he is holy. He is angry against sin and injustice. Not just the stuff that you commit, but the stuff that's committed against you. He hates that. God can't turn a blind eye to all of these things. Someone has to pay. He is a God of justice. The cost must be absorbed somehow. Someone's got to take the hit. Someone has to pay for the damage. Just imagine, I don't know if you've come here tonight in a car. Imagine if you have, you've parked along Stramillis Embankment just here, or maybe in the car park, and, and someone comes in and says, like, hands up, who has this car? You know, uh, the blue car, and that's your car. And they come and say to you, look, I'm really sorry, but I've just reversed into your car door. Uh, the door itself is wrecked. The window's gone in. The um, mirror's bust. I'm really sorry. You have two options right there at that moment, don't you? You can say to that person, well, okay, you pay. Give me your insurance details. Uh, we'll, we'll fix it, but, um, you know, you're paying. <laughs> And that's completely a rightful thing to say. Or you have another option. You could say, look, although you have caused me damage and you have wrecked some of my property, I will pay for the loss. You can just go home, leave it to me, no problem at all. You see, either way, someone has to pay, right? Either the person who's done the damage or the one who's been damaged. Someone has to pay. This is what happens in the gospel. God paid the damage that we caused to him. God absorbed the hit by putting forward his son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself willingly. He paid for our debts. The gospel is costly it cost the son of god for this to be made possible maybe uh, an illustration would help or rather a story from the old testament there's a man by the name of abraham who is a famous character in the beginning of the bible in, in the book of genesis and one day god appeared to abraham and said i'm going to make you a father of many nations I'm going to be your God, and you are going to be my people. But Abraham, who was 75 years old at the time, did not have a son. He could not conceive. His wife was nine years younger than him, and there was no baby. And eventually, through the intervention of God, the Holy Spirit, they conceived and gave birth to a son, and he was called Isaac. We have an Isaac here as well. Abraham was 99 years old, just shy of a century, when he became a father with his wife, Sarah. And Isaac was born, and he was the son of the promise. Through him, God was going to create 
a great people and a great nation. And again, one day, God spoke to Abraham. Isaac was now older. He was probably 10 or 12 or 13 or something like that. He said, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your son Isaac, your only son, the one whom you love, and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering on the altar and kill him. So Abraham obeyed. He took Isaac up a mountain. Isaac carried the wood and they got to the top of the mountain. Abraham bound Isaac, hands and feet tied up and he laid him on the altar that they had put together. And Abraham took a knife and he lifted it above his son, about to kill him so that he could give him as, a, as, a, as an offering to God. And at the last moment before the knife fell upon his son, an angel of the Lord came and said, Stop! Do not harm the child. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham turned and saw a, a ram in the thicket, took his son off the altar and instead put the ram on there and offered the ram as a sacrifice to God. The gospel is costly. You see, God the Father was not stopped like Abraham was. God the Father was not stopped from sacrificing his son, his only son. He allowed him to be put forward and to die on the cross. And so when we look at the cross and we see that the Son gave himself willingly, we can say to God, now we know that you love us because you have not withheld your Son, your only Son, from us. The gospel is necessary. The gospel is gracious. The gospel is costly. And fourthly, the gospel is glorious. And it's at this moment that we move from what we call doctrine to doxology. That is, we go from theology to praise. This is when the truth of what Christ has done for us in the gospel grabs our hearts. Put another way, if this does not move us to praise and worship, then we haven't understood the gospel at all. I mean, who, who could have thought this stuff up? Who would have ever thought that it was possible to be right before God despite something that someone else has done? Not us. Look down at verse 26. It says, to show his righteousness, this is God, at the present time, right now, he says, so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. See, through the gospel, through the cross of Christ, God the Father is just and the justifier. What does that mean? 
It means he is righteous. And he declares his people righteous. He is glorious. And he makes glorious many sinful people because of Christ. The gospel is glorious. At one time, God is just. And at the same time, he is the justifier. He is the one who does this for us so that we may be declared righteous in the eyes of God. An old hymn writer called Charles Wesley in the 18th century wrote these words, a famous hymn. He's reflecting on the gospel, maybe even on these words from Romans chapter 3. And he says this, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, should die for me? The gospel is glorious. It's necessary, it's gracious. It's costly and it is glorious. Three implications I just want to uh, lead you through as we come uh, to, 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 to the sort of you know, the last phase of this message. I want to just help to start to put together some of the implications of what we've been talking about. Three implications to the gospel. Number one, faith and repentance is an implication of the gospel. See, the gospel is not complete, or rather I cannot say I've preached the gospel until I call you to put faith in Christ and repent. <laughs> We're actually going to be seeing that more next week. We're going to flesh out what these two terms mean when we look at uh, conversion. That's the fourth mark of a healthy church. But I cannot say I've completed the gospel preaching without calling for faith and repentance. That's how we take the good news, the glorious news of the gospel and apply it to ourselves or how it's applied to us personally. That's how we can say we benefit from the gospel. We are saved by the gospel, forgiven because of faith and repentance. Paul has talked about it a few times already. He said, uh, for all who believe in Christ... Faith in Christ. When, when you look at the book of Acts in the, the New Testament, uh, the, the story of the early church and what the apostles did in response to uh, the resurrection, the ascension and the, the Pentecost of the Holy Spirit, they went around preaching the good news. And when people heard the gospel message, they asked the apostles, what must we do to be saved? What must we do in response to this gospel message? And their response was always the same. Repent and believe. You've seen how devastatingly honest the Bible is about the human condition, how penetrating its analysis is of us as people. We've seen the darkness of our sin. We've seen the gloriousness of the gospel. And now if we are to respond to it, we are to receive it by faith. That doesn't mean believing blindly in something we can't see. That means trusting in Christ from how he's presented to us in, in, this, in the Bible. 
Believing that what he did, he did for you. That's putting trust in Christ. When he died, he died for you. That is trust. That you will stand righteous in the eyes of God because of Christ and his death and resurrection on a cross. That is trust. That he took the hit for you. And the flip side of the coin. Can't have one without the other. Repentance. Turning away from your former life because of what Christ has done and living for him. Turning from sin to him. Faith and repentance, they're like two sides of a coin. That's number one implication of the gospel. If you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ and what he's done for you, can I suggest you do that this evening? Second implication. Just going to whip through this one here. It radically, radically alters your view of life. Because the gospel is necessary, gracious, costly, and glorious, there is life-changing implications. It will change the way you view yourself. Because when you look at what God did for you, how far he went to save you, how he gave his son for you, how can you hate yourself? How can you mistreat yourself? How can you put yourself first even when you look at what Christ has done? No, you look at yourself in a whole new way. Christ first. You live your life in in response to him. A new order of things has come around. You view yourself differently. You view your relationships differently. You try and live in light of what Christ has done. Your relationships, whether it's your marriages, your parenting, whether it's your friendships, You don't live them for yourself. It's not all about you anymore. You live for other people. You live to serve them because Christ has served you. He gave himself up. You give yourself up for other people. You view yourself differently. You view your relationships differently. You view God differently. No no longer is he a hard task master or a hateful, angry God. He is a God who gave his all for you, to save you. He is worthy of all praise and honour and worship. You think of him differently. And yes, you view creation differently as well. There's much we could say about that and how we relate to the rest of the created order. Implications of faith and repentance. Implications of the way you view yourself and the rest of life. And thirdly and finally, the implication of the gospel is that it motivates us to share the good news with other people. When we see what Christ has done for us, we want to tell the world about it. We want to announce the good news backed up by our lives lived that are transformed by the gospel we want people outside the church to hear and to see see it demonstrated in our lives in our church that brings us to evangelism which is the fifth mark of a healthy church two weeks from today we'll be looking at the implications of the gospel here at foundation church belfast We are all about developing rich community. Community that is based not on ourselves, 
or on some common social grouping, but based on Christ, who is the foundation. And as a result of that, we want to show the light of the gospel to those around us, starting here, starting right here. The gospel is necessary, it is gracious, it is costly, and it is glorious. Let's pray together as we finish this sermon. Oh, Father, we thank you for the good news that no matter how far away we have gone, how sinful we are, you have provided the way back to yourself because of your Son, Jesus Christ. He and his death and resurrection forgives all of our sins. So, Father, we pray just now that you would apply the good news of the gospel word that we've just been talking about to our hearts and our minds. Help us to believe. Help us to trust in Christ, whether that is for the first time tonight or whether we are just looking to increase and deepen our trust in him. Father, we pray that we would see Christ as the evidence of your love for us, the extent that you went to win your people back. Help us to take these truths, help us to apply them to ourselves as a church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.